them. If right now, though, if you want to grab out your message notes, they look like this. On the front is the information about our Financial Peace University coming up. And on the inside are the message notes. And if you have your Bible and you want to follow along in your leather-bound version of your Bible on your phone or on the side screens, we're at Judges chapter 14 today. And as Melissa told you, it's the second part of a sermon that I began last week about the story of Samson, the strong man from the Old Testament. And last week, I talked to you how that even though we're strong, sometimes we act very, very weak. And that God was using the story of Samson in our Old Testament to show us that there's no better place for us to put our trust than to put it in him and in him alone. Every other deliverer, every other deliverer, everywhere else we put our trust is likely, in fact, will disappoint us. But God is the kind of deliverer we can trust to never let us down. And he never forgets what's important. And he always moves the agenda in the right direction. And we're going to look today at Samson's story, not just at his birth that we looked at last week, but at his life and ultimately at his death and what God wants to teach us today about God's own character and what our life with God can be like in light of Samson's experience. So when you read the story of Samson, Old Testament scholars have gotten together and they began to point out parallels between Samson's life and the life of the country of Israel corporately combined. In fact, you can't read very far into the story until you start going like, there's some themes in this story that sound familiar to me. In fact, God often uses individuals in the stories of the Bible and in your life, we call their stories testimonies, to show us things about God and give us wisdom about the life that God has called us to. And that's exactly what's happening in the life of Samson. I want to rehearse for you just a couple of points where Samson's life, those themes in his life, overlap the themes that happen in Israel's story. Remember, Israel is God's people. And so whenever we talk about Israel of the Old Testament, there is direct connection to God's people in the New Testament who we call the church. And so in the Old Testament, both Israel and Samson come from a miraculous birth where an older couple bring this baby into the world. In Samson's case, it was Manoah and an unnamed woman. And they're kind of surprised by the events of his birth that we talked about last week. And in Israel's case, it's Abraham and Sarah who can't believe that God is going to keep his promise to them and give them a child. And through that child, the entire world will be blessed. In both cases, God took something very weak and made it incredibly strong. In Samson's case, he was just a normal human being, but God gave him the ability to have supernatural strength. And in Israel's case, they were a very small, relatively insignificant on the geopolitical scene. They were a small and insignificant country, but God did something profound in them that we're still talking about today. They were both given special law or code. They were both giving special law or code. In Samson's case, he was given a Nazarite vow, and it's important for you to remember that. And if you weren't here, maybe this will be new for you. But Samson had three big rules he couldn't break. And if he would keep those rules, God said to him, God would use him dramatically. Here were the rules. No strong drink. In fact, nothing from the vine. No grape juice, no welches, no, no nothing, all right? And, uh, and then he couldn't cut his hair. Uh, this, as his hair would grow, it would be a symbolism of him growing in knowledge and strength and favor with God. And he couldn't touch anything dead. And that was a Nazarite vow. And Samson didn't make it for a short period of time. His was to last his entire life. And Israel had what we call the Ten Commandments for short or all the laws of God. And God said to that group of people, these are yours because I love you, because we have a relationship. And I want you to live life this way. And if you do, it will bless you and it will bless the people around you. And then finally, both Samson and Israel were drawn to foreign allegiances. In Samson's case, you're going to discover today, he went against what he was encouraged to do in the law of God, and instead of marrying people from his own people, he was attracted to foreign women. Now, not in a romantic kind of cool way, but in a very unhealthy, ungodly way in light of the story of the Bible. And Israel was always drawn to foreign gods, and God used the metaphor often of Israel and their attraction to other gods as kind of like them having an affair on God. They were committing adultery, as it were, against God. So in many ways, Samson's story and Israel's story overlaps. And whenever you see that happening in the Bible, it's a clue for us to slow down because there's probably a lot of stuff in the story for us today. And in fact, that's exactly true. Last week, we discovered that God would use Samson in spite of his weaknesses. 
But God would use him and make him strong, even though in many ways he didn't deserve to be used that way. Well, the other side of the coin that we need to explore today, to be honest and truthful to God's word, is, is exactly what kinds of mistakes did Samson make and what can we learn from them today? So in Judges chapter 14, verse 1, we're beginning right away. Here's what our Bible says on the screens in your sermon notes. Samson went down to Timnah. That was a city, Timnah. And we're going to pause right there for a second because for the next two chapters, well, three, 14, 15, and 16, Samson is going to go down. I'm going to give you the, the answer to the, uh, to the question, what happens at the end of the story? He's dead. He's in many ways destitute. In many ways, it's a sad and sobering story. And it begins really right here with the phrase, he goes down. And literally, he moves from the higher plains of Israel down to a lower city at a lower, um, you know, height compared to sea level. He goes down to Timnah, and there he saw a young Philistine woman. And recall that at this point in Israel's history, they had been overtaken by the Philistines, a ruthless group of people. They weren't just overtaken by them. Their entire lives were intertwining with them. They were literally subservient to the Philistines. And interestingly enough... The Philistines, the Philistines were a, a, a marauding army of people that were willing to take anything and everything at any price, and they had the strength to back up their words and their threats. And it was to the Philistines that Israel had so many challenges and so many difficulties they had to face. And so when Samson goes down to the city, he sees a Philistine woman. And when he returned, he said to his father and his mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Um, I don't know what you think, and I don't know how you interacted with your kids, but if I had said to my parents, go get me a wife, I'm not sure what the reaction would have been. I think that we're getting a little insight into the way Samson views life and the way he views satisfying his wants. He's going to go after whatever he wants. And again, not in that good romantic kind of way. Or in that healthy way where you grab the bull by, by the horns and you tackle your goals. This is very much a selfish, immature approach to life. And so his father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among, the rel among your relatives or among all of our people? Now when you hear relatives, don't think crazy stuff. We're talking about the larger family that is Israel. If you don't know, Israel ultimately comes from one person who was named Israel. His name was Jacob. God changed his name to Israel. Israel had 12 sons, and those 12 sons make up 12 tribes. We're several hundred years past that event now. And there's, you know, several hundred thousand people. And they're saying, look, we are a special group of people that God's called out. And God told us to kind of stick together and encourage each other in the way that God wants us to go. And why don't you just hang with our people a bit and marry somebody that shares our values? I mean, Samson's mother and father knew even at this point in the unfolding story of God's plan, it's healthier to marry people that you have similar values to. The idea of missionary dating, that is, I'll save him, I'll get her committed to Christ. Those things almost never work out. I've known a few examples where God was gracious. But in general, there's a lot of pain. And Samson's mother and father love him, and they don't want him to go through that. So isn't there anybody from among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Now, number one on your message notes there, Samson's primary driver in life is going to be what pleases him. What pleases him. Now, if you've been following along with the story, you know that Samson has a call on his life to be a deliverer to Israel. He has something important to do. And this first statement that we're reflecting on right now, that Samson is driven by what pleases him, lets every leader in the room know something that immediately there's an oxymoron happening here. You can't do great things. You can't lead well and be driven by your passions. They don't. They, they don't intersect. doesn't add up. And Samson's call and his purpose is going to come in conflict with his desires. And this is where we begin to get a hint that what's happening in Israel collectively that we're reading about in the person of Samson now is also something that probably overlaps people you know. In fact, it may have overlapped your own life. 
I have to be totally candid with you and say that the reason I like the story of Samson is because there's some really cool stuff that he does, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. But the other reason I like Samson is, for me, is it serves as an incredible warning sign, an early detection system of the kinds of things that should be on my mind as I think about walking life with God and with my wife and as a dad and as a pastor and just as a, a good, godly man. Samson's story is an early warning system for every person that wants to tune in and pay attention to how it is that you can follow God and not get tripped up by yourself. We're going to discover that while Samson has the Philistine armies and the Philistine culture and the Philistine values working against him, that is not his biggest problem. Samson's biggest problem is not the Philistines, it's Samson. And I've often said from this stage, and I want to remind you one more time, if you're a leader and everybody in the room is a leader because you're called to lead yourself, the hardest person you will ever lead is you. I'm the hardest person that I'll ever have to lead. And Samson's going to come face to face with the dark side of who he is. But this story is ultimately not even about Samson or about you. This story is ultimately about God. And the character of God that shines through when people who are driven by passion and impulse make stupid decisions, do dumb things, go against the values they know to be true. And what does God do in the light of that? How does God prove himself faithful and kind and good? And how does God bring about his good purposes in the story of your life, not just in the story of Samson or in the story of Israel? What is God likely to do with us when we... Do what pleases us instead of what pleases him. The story of Samson begins to unfold. In fact, in Judges chapter 14, verse 4, the very next verse, here's what the Bible tells us. Gives us a little insight to God's activity. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. Now, what we're being told here is, is that Samson is making some very unwise and unhealthy and against his values kinds of decisions. And while that's going on over here on this side of the, of the stage, over here, God is orchestrating and using and taking advantage of everything Samson's doing to accomplish God's own good purposes. This is fascinating study about the character of God. That somehow God is able, in light of our poor decisions, in light of our stupidity, in light of us doing our own thing instead of his thing, God is still able to get his will accomplished. This is not telling us that Samson's making a good decision and that God's telling him to do it. In fact, he's making a foolish and unhealthy decision. What it's telling us is that in light of all that, God is still going to use it. So point number two there, Samson's decision was not righteous or wise. But God would use it in Samson's life. And God would use it in Israel's history. And God would teach us through this if we'll listen to him. So point A there then, God uses all things to bring about his good purposes in the world and in your life. This is good news for every follower of Jesus in the room. God uses every single thing. There isn't a molecule in the universe that isn't under the ability of God to use for his glory and for our good. And I mean the kind of good defined by what he says is good. There's no person, there's no job, there's no circumstance. There's nothing that God cannot and will not use to bring about his good purpose in this world. And you have to keep this in mind as we continue to read the story of Samson going down. Because it's going to look like total failure. And in many ways, it is, viewed from a certain angle. But what's really going on here is God is using a very flawed and failing human being to accomplish God's own good purpose. This is a story ultimately of redemption, paid at a high price. It's the story of an imperfect deliverer, a called person who doesn't walk the path in a straight fashion. And yet God keeps correcting the course. And this is, again, why I love the story of Samson. 
because it's not just some guy in the Old Testament. And I don't relate to him because of his superhuman strength, although I like to remind my wife I'm very strong. I used to remind my little boys when they were little I was very strong. They're not little anymore, and I don't remind them anything at all about strength. We did some wrestling on vacation, and I don't have any pictures, so I'm not going to admit to anything that may or may not have happened while we were wrestling. They're big is all I'm going to say. So I don't relate to Samson because he's strong. I relate to Samson because in the middle of his strength, there's this incredible weakness. And he keeps showing up. And it's like he can't get it right. And that's what it looks like from Samson's side. But point B here, here's something we need to remember about God. When hearts get too comfortable in this world, God has a tendency to stir things up. When hearts get too comfortable in this world, God stirs things up. This brings us back to what's really going on in Israel. They are surrounded by the Philistines, but the threat here is not that the Philistines will exterminate Israel. That's not the threat. The biggest threat is not extermination. The biggest threat is assimilation. That somehow God would watch his loved children walk away from a relationship with him defined by values and, and structure and commitment and covenant. That they would walk away from that and instead of being overrun or exterminated by the Philistines, they would instead assimilate all the Philistine culture into their own lives. In fact, if you recall from last week, if not again, watch it online. This is that one story in the book of Judges, the one where Israel is overrun by the Philistines, but they're not calling out for help. It's almost as if they've gotten comfortable with their captors. It's almost as if they've gotten comfortable with that culture that is completely anti-God. And rather than asking God to deliver them and get them out of here and bring them back to that place of walking with him in deep commitment, what they're doing is they're, well, watch Samson. He goes down and he looks at the Philistines and he's, he's captivated by her. He likes it. Their strength, the numbers, what they're able to accomplish. The Philistines have metal. Israel still has sticks and stones. The Philistines are building bridges over water. Israel's still standing with the sheep grazing in the field. And they're captivated by that culture. It seems enticing. It's attractive. This is where Samson is. He's very comfortable. And that's exactly the point where the true deliverer of the story, who is not a flawed human being by the name of Samson, but it's the Lord, the promise keeper, the one who is faithful. This is where the true deliverer gets involved in the story and starts stirring things up. And from the outside observation, from the people who loved Samson, they're watching him go through some incredibly rough stuff. And they don't realize that what's happening here is that God is making people who have gotten far too comfortable about to get very uncomfortable. So that he could grab their attention once again and say, let me remind you that life with me is the only life that you really want to live. You're so focused on the immediate and on the now, and your perspective is so limited that you think that what you see in front of you is what you want. I want to remind you what's way out into the future. I want to remind you what's on the other side of a relationship with me. I want to remind you what purpose and covenant and commitment looks like. But Samson goes down and he sees, and God's going to begin to use it. So at this point, number three then, we see that Samson serves his own agenda of pleasure and revenge. That's what we're going to discover in the next few minutes. Rather than serving the call of God on his life in a direct fashion, it's almost as if God has to work around Samson to use Samson. Because Samson is so busy following his own agenda of pleasure and ultimately revenge. The first place we see this, I referenced it a little bit last week in Judges chapter 14. There's the story in letter A there of Samson and the lion riddle. The, the riddle about the lion. Samson is walking around one day and he sees a lion. And he's strong and the spirit of God comes upon him. And he literally rips the lion apart with his bare hands. And there was that one odd verse where it said that Samson ripped apart the lion like you would rip apart a lamb or a goat. And I've never understood that phrase because I can't imagine either one being all that pleasurable. But in Israel, it was a metaphor that meant something. 
And so he rips apart the lion. And a few days later, he goes by and he sees that lion carcass lying there. And the bees have put a hive in it. And there's honey in the hive. And he goes over and he touches that dead thing, which is a warning light on the dashboard because he's not supposed to touch any dead thing. That's his Nazarite vow. And he goes over and he dips honey up out of that lion. And he satisfies himself once again, very impulsive. And then he goes to a party, one of these seven-day-long drunken parties that the Philistines were known for. And Samson's there. It's lasting seven days. And on the first day, he says, I'm going to fool these incredibly wise and smart Philistines with a riddle. Effectively, he said, what is dead but sweet at the same time? And if you Philistines, the third of you here at this party with me, if you can answer the question, I'll give each of you a new suit of clothing. But if you can't answer the question at the end of seven days, what will happen is, is you'll each owe me a suit of clothes. Well, the Philistines are smart. They're going to be out, not be outdone by one of these, you know, uncouth, uncultured Israelites. And they can't figure it out. So they go to Samson's would-be wife, his fiance. And they start saying, figure out what this is all about. Figure out what this is all about. And eventually, Samson succumbs to her cries, to her begging. And he tells her the answer to the riddle is, is that what is dead is the lion and what comes out of it is the honey. That's the answer to the riddle. And on day seven of this incredible party, the Philistines call it the Mista. At the end of the seven-day party, this kind of drunken orgy, if you will, they stand up in front of Samson, proud with their answer, and they say, what is more dead than a dead lion, and what is sweeter than honey? And he is burning with anger. And we pick up the answer to what he has to say to them at verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 18, the second part there in your sermon notes. Samson said to them, I love his way with words, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And he went down to Eshkelon and he struck down 30 men, stripped them of everything and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. And Samson's wife, wife-to-be, was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. And Samson says to his dad, why did you do this? And he says, I thought you hated her for what you did. So he comes home after having killed 30 people. And they're dead, and then he takes their clothes. Again, warning light, Nazarite vows being broken. And we begin to see Samson go through a series of engagements that show incredible strength and at the same time an incredible weakness. Now, I don't know about you, but my heart kind of goes out to this bumbling, testosterone-filled, roid-raged kind of guy. And he just he can't get it right. And on occasion, I see myself here, and as a pastor, I see in his story dozens of folks who sat across from me at my desk, and we've talked about their lives, and they tell these incredible stories where almost anybody looking in could say, you had ample warning to not go where it ultimately goes, but you kept going that way. Why did you do it? Why did you do it? So there was Samson and the, and the lion. Now look at the next one. It's Samson and the foxes on fire. This is a horrible story. PETA will not like this story. But as practical jokes go back in the day, this is a pretty good one. Samson is so upset about his wife that he goes and he captures 300 foxes. I don't know how you do this, but he did it. And he ties them together, tail to tail. Again, sorry, PETA, all right? And then he puts a torch in between their tails and he lets them run free in the wheat fields of the Philistines. And those foxes are trying to go every which way and everywhere they go and everywhere they run trying to get away from each other, they're lighting the fields on fire. And in the area of Israel overrun by the Philistines, it's a really, really bad time. And in chapter 15, verse 4, so he went out and he caught 300 foxes. He tied them tail to tail in pairs. And then he fastened a torch to every pair of tails. He lit the torches and let the foxes run loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the, the, the shocks and the standing grain together with the vineyards and the olive groves. It's a bad day. This is how he got revenge. But he's not done. Let her see there, the Samson and the, the jawbone of the donkey, or the donkey's jawbone. He's so upset, the Philistines are so angry with Samson that they, they come down to get him. And as the, uh, the skirmish is about to, to begin, he finds a dead donkey's jawbone laying on the ground. 
And he picks it up again, warning light, Nazarite vow all over the place being broken. And he picks it up, and the Bible says God's spirit comes on him, and he takes that jawbone and he kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. In fact, in chapter 15, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and he struck down a thousand men. And then Samson sings a song. He said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. And with a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. It doesn't rhyme in English, but it kind of does in Hebrew. Yeah. And yet I kind of imagine like Eminem rapping this thing out. You know, like I killed them all. I had a ball. Something like that. And then when he's done, he just kind of drops the jawbone like you drop the mic. Right? Boom. And he walks away. And he is at the height of his power. And at the same time, he's at the pinnacle of his weakness. It's all about him. It's revenge. It's pleasure. And this brewing conflict now between the star Israelite and this culture of the Philistines. But Samson's not done going down. Roman numeral number four, Samson then goes into the night. This is interesting because this is the story where we get Delilah showing up on the scene. And the name Delilah in Hebrew sounds a little bit like the phrase in, in Hebrew, nighttime. So Samson connects with Delilah, but he connects with the night. And his lights are about to go out. So in Judges chapter 16, verse 4 through 6, sometimes later he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek. Remember, he's already had a bad experience with Philistine women. And here's another one, whose name was Delilah. So Samson's in love. The rulers of the Philistine went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his strength and how we can overpower him and so we may tie him up and subdue him. And each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah, Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. And he said, I won't do it. I'm tired. Leave me alone. And she says, well, lay here on my lap and go to sleep. And so she's stroking his hair, which if you're a filmographer, this is an incredible, you know, uh, point of, of foreshadowing where she's kind of playing with his hair and he falls asleep, not knowing that the hair is connected to the secret of his strength. And so finally, as he's almost asleep, he says, here's what you do. You tie me up with new ropes. And if you tie me up with new ropes, I'll be as weak as every human being. She ties him up with new ropes, and then in the, while he's asleep, she yells at him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And the Bible says he gets up and he just breaks the ropes. And she's like, you don't love me. If you really love me, you'd tell me the secret. He says, I really love you. Here's the secret. If you will, take bowstring, you know, incredible strength, bowstring, and you bind me in a certain way with bowstring, then I'll be as weak as any human being. And so she strokes his hair again, and he falls asleep. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he jumps up and boom, the bowstrings break. You don't love me. If you really love me, you tell me. Here's what you do. All right, here's what you do. You take my hair. Now he's like playing with hair now. You take my hair and you weave it into a weave loom. And if you do that, I'll be weak. She weaves his hair into a loom and while he's asleep. And Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up. And the, the, the story in the Bible is, is that Samson is kind of spinning around the room and this loom is just going around knocking everything down and she's crying in the corner. You clearly don't love me. You really don't love me. And finally, he gives in and he says, here's the deal. If you cut my hair, I'll be as weak as any human being. And that's exactly what she does. And he is as weak as any human being. At this point, his ignoring of the vows that he had made and the covenant relationship he had with God catches up with him and he is no longer strong. Letter A, here's the thing we have to acknowledge for us. Samson is not stupid. You read this and you're like, how dumb do you have to be? I mean, you've been taught the lesson. How many times do you have to see her do this before you realize she's out to get you? It's not that he's stupid. He's not strong. He's strong, but he's not strong enough to withstand her displeasure. He wanted to be liked. He wanted to be loved. It's the Achilles heel of a lot of people. The desire to be liked keeps people from moving forward in the path that God has for them. They won't have that conversation. They won't put up that boundary. They won't deal with that thing. They won't stop that issue. They won't confront that matter. Because they want to be liked. 
And it robs very, otherwise very strong people of strength and momentum and the call of God on their life. I've seen men who won't stand up to their wives. I've seen wives who won't stand up to their husbands and have healthy conversations. And it's not that they don't know better. They just, you just get tired of it after a while. They run out of steam. I've seen girlfriends give in to boyfriends and all kinds of stupid stuff. I've seen college-age kids give in to otherwise incredibly bright college-age kids do some of the stupidest things because their buddies around them are encouraging them to do it. And rather than stand up to their displeasure, they give in, they do the thing, they'd rather be a part of the group than march forward in the thing that they're called to do. I've seen women marry men. They have no business marrying. They know it's not right, but the fear of being alone, that, that isolation that comes causes them to step forward into a relationship that will bring them a whole lot more pain than their loneliness ever would. You've seen it too, haven't you? I mean, maybe, maybe it's your relatives, maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's your kids you've seen some of this in. But if we're honest, what we're supposed to be seeing in the story of Samson is a little bit of all of us. You're supposed to see a little bit of yourself here. And not because you are like Samson physically strong. Perhaps you are. I don't know. My sons, if you tell them that you're strong, they'd like to, you to demonstrate that. They'd be glad to wrestle you. Something I learned on vacation. <laughs> they'd be glad to wrestle you. It may not be that you're physically strong, but what's going on here is, is that God is helping us to realize that any strength we have that is not built on the life that he's called us to ultimately will be a point of pain for us. God delights in taking the weak things of this world and making them strong for his purpose. And it seems as if he delights in showing us that every bit of strength we have in our own authority and in our own power ultimately won't accomplish anything of eternal significance. It's not that Samson is stupid. He just can't put up with the woman who won't stop. And so he gives in. In chapter 16, verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with silver in their hands. And after putting him to sleep in her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair. So he began, and, and, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. I remember as a kid hearing a, pastor who came to my church preached a sermon, and he gave three major points. And evidently, this is a sermon that's been preached that I've heard other pastors make the same three points, and I want to give them to you. It's a sermon about sin. And, you know, we don't like to talk a lot about sin, right? But let me just give it to you. The first blank there is sin binds. Sin binds. I think I have blinds up top, but it's binds. Sin binds. B-I-N-D-S. Number two, then, is sin blinds, and number three is sin grinds. And I remember this pastor, when I was a young man, talking about just how far Samson's sin had taken him. His hands were bound, and he could no longer break free. The next part of the story is the Bible says they gouge out his eyes, and then with a hot poker, seal the wound. That is not a good day. And then he finds himself almost like a circus animal, tethered to a grinding wheel where he's walking around in a circle with the stick in front of him and as he pushes it, the big stone over here rolls and it crushes the wheat and you can get the kernel out of it. Sin binds, it blinds, and it makes you grind. The point here is that sin always starts out as fun. Always. But it always will take you farther than you want it to go. And it'll make you pay more than you ever wanted to pay. And this is why God came to Samson to begin with and said, I want to show you how to protect yourself and keep yourself from a lot of the pain that's going to be offered to you in this world. And it's never going to come in a package wrapped that says pain on it. It's going to come wrapped beautifully. It's going to come wrapped as fun. It's going to come wrapped as freedom. It's going to come wrapped to you as something that, that you want and empowerment. When you open that package, it's going to cost you. So what I want you to do, Samson, instead, God says to him, I want you to avoid wine and strong drink. In fact, just stay away from anything in the vine. Like, just put a boundary there. And, and let's just stay away from dead stuff. 
let's just stay away from dead stuff for Samson. And then don't cut your hair. And you're going to look a little crazy. You're going to stand out from the crowd. Don't cut your hair. And those things, while they were from God, they were clear. They didn't make full sense to Samson. And in the moment, his impulses were stronger. And at this point in the story is where I start thinking, is this really a story about Samson or is it about us? Let me give you letter A then under Roman numeral number five. Here's a handful of things that I mentioned last week we're going to explore today for a second that Samson did wrong. See if you can see yourself in this at all. Letter A, Samson is impulsive. He's impulsive. Go get me that woman. She's the one I want. While I was on, on vacation, I did a, quite a bit of reading, and I was just, you know, scrolling through my feed one day on my phone, and there was an article about texting and driving. I wasn't driving while I was scrolling, thank God. I was reading about texting and driving, and we hear everybody in the room, you've heard the stats, it's, you know exactly how bad texting and driving is, and my point right now isn't whether you should text or drive, although you shouldn't, but I want to just make a similar kind of point that I think the Scripture is trying to make to us right now. In this article, it says that when you're texting and driving, you're 23 times more likely to have an accident. That it slows down your response time to what's in front of you, kind of as if you were drunk or perhaps smoking marijuana. And so in this article, they're exploring why do people still do it? And it's because in the moment, when you get that text, you have this impulse, this need to respond. And so you just, you know, with your thumbs while you're looking around or at a red light, but then it, it goes further and... And we all know it. We all know the, the stats. You've all seen the commercials. And yet many, many people still do it. I, I've been guilty of it myself. Now, what is that? It's impulse. Years ago, there was a study done by uh, Harvard University, and they put young kids in a room, and they said to them, there's a marshmallow in front of you, and you're welcome to eat the marshmallow. But if you'll hold off eating the marshmallow for five minutes, we'll give you two marshmallows. And then they traced the kids over what happened over the next 20 years. And the kids who were able to withhold their impulse from eating the one marshmallow and could wait for just five minutes to get two marshmallows, they traced those kids over the next 20 years of their lives. And those who had impulse control did better in school, they had better relationships, they had better outcomes. But the kids who quickly grabbed the marshmallow and stuffed it in the mouth, which they were allowed to do, they weren't breaking any rules. It was their call. They struggled as a rule. Impulse. God is the God who comes along and says to us that we're called by the fruit of the Spirit to self-control. And yet if I look at my life, I bet if you looked at yours and you were completely honest, you would love to go back to a few critical moments where you would say something, why in that moment did I do the thing? Why didn't I just stay quiet? Why didn't I just walk away? Why didn't I just make another decision? But in the moment, you were so compelled and it felt so right. Samson was very strong, but in this matter, he was weak. And his weakness overcomes his strength. Letter B, compromising. Under letter A, what's your primary criteria in major decision? Decision-making, is it what pleases you or is it what pleases God? And in letter B, are the commands of God a casual matter to you? Again, I know this isn't popular in a church that promises to be as contemporary as ours does when you drive by and look at it. And you look at our music and our lights and all that. But the bottom line is, it's a timeless message. Sin destroys. And the commands of God are not meant to be casual. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you're acting as if God's rules don't apply to you, you're just going to bring pain to yourself. It's not that God is up there angry at you. That's not what's going on. He's much more like a caring parent that's like, oh, no, what are you doing? You don't see it, but I do. I didn't tell you that to rob you of joy. I told you that to protect your joy and to protect the call on your life and to protect the place I want to take you. When you act this way, it's going to rob you. It doesn't hurt him. It robs you. So being casual with sin as our culture seems to be. And we're enamored sometimes with our culture. And I'm not talking about the world out there. This is not a message for everybody. This is a message for followers of Jesus. Let us see. Uh, Samson had an entitlement mentality. 
It's as if his God-given gifts were his, were his, for his glory and not for God's glory. And by God-given gifts, I mean all that he had, his heritage, his birthright, the strength, and all that you have, the country you were born in, the intellect that you have, the education God allowed your path to take you to, all the way down to the very air you breathe. Are they for your glory or for God's? And from time to time, followers of Jesus should pause and say, am I leveraging the things that God has given to me for him or for me? What, what, what's the balance of this? And for Samson, when you read his story over and over again, he's using the strength that was meant to deliver Israel for his own petty pleasure and revenge. And letter D, pride. With Samson, there's nobody around saying to him, hey, you may want to think about this. There was that one moment his parents said, isn't there anybody else? But you get the sense that you didn't argue much with Samson. So how do you receive criticism? How isolated are you? One of the antidotes to pride in the Christian life is supposed to be the larger family of God. That you have brothers and sisters around you, that you're not a renegade on your own. And they love you enough, and there's enough trust there, that with the appropriate sensitivity, of course, and timing, they can, from on, on occasion, say, hey, tell me about that. Can we talk about that? I have, a, I have a, a concern for you. But pride isolates, and pride elevates, and ultimately pride will destroy that's why the scriptures replete with warnings like pride goes before a fall. And when you talk about pride, it's a lot like talking about gossip. You talk about it as a pastor and nobody thinks it applies to them. But probably sitting near you, there's somebody proud. And you can see it perfectly in their life. But this is one of those things that we're encouraged to look in the mirror for. Not in the rear view mirror where we're looking out at everybody else, not out the window, but looking at a mirror directly at our own faces. These are things we can learn from Samson, but I want to look at the other side of the equation. What can we learn from God? And here it is, letter, or Roman numeral number six, God is greater. So letter A then, we have someone greater than Samson to deliver us. Thank God. I mean, if we were dependent only on Samson-like deliverers, we're in trouble. I'm reminded every time there's a new official elected into some government position, they may do some good, but they're not the ultimate deliverer. And if I put my full trust there, I'm going to be disappointed. I'm reminded every time a new leader is installed in church leadership. I know we just did a little bit of that. Sorry, I'm not. <laughs> but as awesome as Travis is, he ain't going to be perfect. And I can say that with boldness because you're looking at a guy who's not one day ever been perfect as I've led this church. Now, if you're looking at me to deliver you, well, you never say it that way, but not disappoint you. I, we can only keep up that facade to the degree you don't know me well enough. Right? Every deliverer. And if you're looking to a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, to deliver you, it ain't going to work. At best, they're flawed. Your husband cannot complete you. Your friends cannot satisfy you. Only God can do that. So let her be then. The good news about Samson's story and ours is it's never too late to cry out to God. With eyes gouged out, bound to a, a mill, there's a big celebration being thrown in the largest temple in the land of Philistia. Samson's brought in. They make sport of him. They poke him. They prod him. He can't see. He doesn't know where he's coming from. But they haven't noticed that his hair has begun to grow back. And he directs a little servant person to put him between the two pillars holding up the building. It's a pitiful picture. He's being ridiculed. While he was strong, his weaknesses have overtaken him. He's bound. He's blind. He's been grinding. But in that moment, he bows his head and he asks God, God, one more time, would you use me? In that moment, he begins to push with his right and left hand against the two pillars holding up the building, and he pushes them down. And in that act, he killed more Philistines than in all of his life combined. And he not just killed them, but in the temple that celebrated their God. And Israel at that moment turns back to the Lord. 
to let her see them, we have two options when we find ourselves like Samson. And in either in a large way or in a small way, we have fallen. We failed. Number one is remorse. You can feel bad. In fact, some of us probably should a little bit. Feel a little bad. In fact, I'm a little concerned sometimes as I look at culture, as I look at the church, as I look at myself, just how much I can do and not feel bad about for a long time. In fact, we can justify it. Everybody else, they, I'm not as bad as. I deserve. I've gone a while. This one won't matter. Remorse, though, is not the parking place for the followers of Jesus. There's a much better option. It's called repentance. That's the second point. You can have remorse or you can repent. And when it comes to sin that we're not supposed to take casual, God unashamedly looks at his followers, looks at me, looks at you, and he says, here's what I want you to do with that. I want you to acknowledge that sin, take responsibility for it, and then give it to me. I want you to repent. Quit acting like it doesn't matter. What you look at with your eyes, men and ladies, I used to just say men. Can't do that anymore. HBO changed that for all of us. What you look at with your eyes, the Bible says, do not look lustfully upon another person. What it says. I didn't write the rules. So what we look at with our eyes matters. And the world is captivated and we're supposed to be ashamed of it. The enemy would love for you to wallow in shame. And God says, no, just give it to me. Repent and turn away from your sin. And I could give a laundry list of sins. And in a room this size, some of them would hit. I don't really want to do that. But I talk about the story of Samson. You can't get away from the fact that this man's sins caught up with him. And you can't get away from the fact in Israel's life, their sins caught up with them. And you can't get away from your own life where your sins will catch up with you. The Bible says they are pleasurable for a season. Short amount of time. But God calls us to repentance. And it's not built out of shame or disgust or anger. It's our loving Heavenly Father that says, I simply don't want that for you. You can't see where that's going to take you. It's why parents sometimes with incredible passion say to their kids, don't do the thing. Because we love them so much and we've lived long enough. Maybe we've even done the thing. We know where it's going to take, where it took us. We just don't want it to take them there. It's not even about the thing itself. It's about what that does. Don't do the thing. You don't know. You haven't seen. And there's our Heavenly Father saying, all right, you did the thing. I'm a perfect deliverer. You're enamored with the culture around you. I can show you a better way. You're, you're strong in many ways, but you're, you're, you're your own worst enemy. Let me deliver you from yourself. You can't save yourself from your own sin. You can't wash yourself white as, no, as snow. Let me clean you up. I'm a perfect deliverer. And so the story of Samson then ultimately points to that time that David is going to become king and bring unity to Israel. That's one point. But it doesn't stop there. It points further to the story of Jesus, the one perfect final deliverer. For all of humanity, they came and said, I can deliver you from the worst captivity you'll ever have. And that's the captivity of yourself. And you and I can do life together in a very different way. And I'd like for us to take a few steps in that direction right now. So why don't you grab out your Connect card and let's see how we can do that today as a congregation. Next step A gives you a chance to say to God, I need a deliverer and I'm not good enough, strong enough to deliver myself. So I'm going to trust the work that Jesus has done on the cross and in the resurrection to set me free from my sin, the penalty of my sin, and ultimately the path of my sin. And so next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. And if you feel compelled to do that today, we'd ask you to take the pen we provided and just check next step A. And by the way, feeling compelled is not just your emotion. I believe that's the Holy Spirit saying, God wants a relationship with you. Go ahead and respond to that. So we'd ask you to check the box as an act of your faith where you're saying, basically, I know I can't save myself. I'm an imperfect deliverer. So I'm going to trust the one and only perfect deliverer, Jesus Christ, and the work that he accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. 
And in that alone will I trust to be the guiding force in my life. And then you take that card and put it in the offering bucket at the end of our service. And we follow up with you this week. Not asking you to join our church. We just ask you and give you information about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Or perhaps next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. Not this service, but next service, two of our family members here at this church are going to get baptized. Incredible stories of transformation. Waking up to the fact that God is somebody that can be depended upon. If you haven't gone yet public with your faith, if you'll check the box, we'll begin to talk with you. Now, next step C kind of deals with the meat of what we were talking about. It says, who will join me in praying this prayer each morning this week? Are you ready for this sentence? God, today, make me more concerned with your glory than my own. Each day this week, God, today, I want to focus on you, not me. God, today, I want to bring glory to you, not to me. God, today, I want it to be your agenda, not mine. Your glory, not me. You get bigger, let me get smaller. If you'll join me with that prayer, the staff and I will join with you. And we'll just ask God to do his finishing work in your life. And next step, D, I don't need to know the details, but it could be that you're, if you're honest, you would say, I am too casual with the commands of God. I'm just too casual with it. So today I'm repenting of my sin. And if you want to tell us about that, you can turn your card over and we'll keep that in confidence on the team that enters that stuff and the prayer team and the staff. But if you don't, you can keep it between you and God. And in a minute, we're going to pray, and I'm going to give you a chance to bow your head and say, God, I'm following you, but I ain't following very well. And I'm going to turn away from the sin. And one more time, i got to come back to you. I don't want to be Samson. I want you to save me long before I find myself bound and blind and grinding. And the next step, he says, I'll pray for our new student pastor, Travis, and 4C Student Ministries. So if you'll check that box, we'll give you some ways that you can help us pray about it. Would you bow with me right now as we join together? Lord Jesus, thank you for being the God who saves, for sending your one and only son, Jesus, the perfect deliverer, the perfect sacrifice to cover all of our sin. And God, we, even in light of that, even in our knowledge of that, we can't be perfect with you. You've been perfect with us, and we can't be perfect with you. So we come before you humbly, knowing that the very grace that saved us is the grace that has to sustain us. And in this space right now, God, with men and women who are following you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do its powerful work. That you would stir up in our hearts those things that you want to deal with. Not so that we feel shame, not that we get parked in remorse, but that it would lead us to repentance. We'd humble ourselves before you. We deal with our words. We deal with our attitudes. And Lord, we wouldn't just ask for you to forgive us, but we'd get up from this place and we'd begin to walk more boldly in the direction you've called us. We'd make decisions. We'd make changes. We'd get the help we need. We would be honest with our friends and encourage them to speak to us and into that situation. Our repentance would be real and it would take. We'd turn away from the culture of this world. We'd turn towards you. God, I pray for those men and women in this room that are declaring, Jesus, be my Savior. Wash away my sins. I can't save myself, so I trust the work you've accomplished. And Father, would you make this to be the kind of church where people who need to deliver will come and find you? Oh, they'd be impressed with our greeting and they'd enjoy the worship and they'd find the word engaging. But Lord, would you ultimately draw them to you? We want Jesus to be high and lifted up in this place. We pray all these things in your name, the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen. Amen.